Welcome to Creation, Myth, or Miracle. This is your host, ex-atheist Richard Walker. Welcome to another episode of Creation, Myth, or Miracle. On our last show, we were looking at the uh, commonly made accusation that the Bible is simply full of errors and contradictions, and that's why nobody should take it seriously. Well, we ended the show with a brief discussion of the difference between a reason and an excuse. The way I'm using those terms, the difference is the following. It's only a reason to disbelieve something if one is willing to listen to the answers for the reason and consider them as possibly correct. If one is not willing to consider the details of the supposed reason they're giving, then it's really not a reason, it's just an excuse. They're just saying something that makes them feel better about disbelieving something that they really have no rational, carefully examined reasons for disbelieving. For example, let's consider what is going on in the realm of scientific investigations of dinosaur bones. Two different sets of scientific data should be challenging the claim that these bones are as old as they are supposed to be, that is, 65 million years old or older. One type of scientific evidence is the fact that quite measurable carbon-14 exists in dinosaur bones, implying that based upon that dating technique, they can't be more than thousands of years old, certainly not millions of years old. That's actually scientifically impossible. And a completely separate type of reasoning relates to the soft tissues that are being documented in several types of dinosaur bones, and even in feathers. And these are fossils from various kinds of deposits, different types of environments, etc., where there's no common thread, no explanation at all as to how these soft tissues can still exist after all these millions of years. Now, why is that a problem? The continued existence of these biological structures, molecules, and tissues even, simply violates what we know in biology and in chemistry. It contradicts known, laboratory-tested scientific laws. And as I've mentioned before, scientists are looking for some kind of a new law to allow this preservation to occur. However, this new law will have to contradict known laws. The obvious simple answer is the bones aren't that old. But since that answer is deemed unacceptable and can't even be considered, they're essentially looking for excuses to ignore the scientific data. So you often hear claims of the carbon-14 is based upon contamination, despite the fact that if you put no sample in the machine, you don't get those readings. It's clearly coming from the sample itself and despite the fact that the rate at which biological structures dissolve into goo is pretty well known and pretty well understood. Remember when we talked about Mary Schweitzer's evidence, and she was publishing papers simply documenting what she was finding under the microscope, not making any conclusions, no claims that these bones weren't millions of years old. In fact, she very much believes they are. She was simply trying to publish what she found and was getting flack from reviewers at science journals. Reviewers who were saying, I don't care what data you show me, that's not possible. She documented she replied to one reviewer, well, what data would convince you? And the response was, none. 
Now, this isn't somebody looking for a reason. This is nothing but blatantly stating an excuse. Don't show me the data. I won't consider it. So you have to keep that mindset in your thought process as we think about this claim that the Bible is simply full of errors and contradictions. Let's try to look at these issues honestly. And we're not about to repeat it, but we define several types of claimed or apparent contradictions that really aren't based upon various fallacies and faulty reasoning. We talked about a false dilemma. We talked about contextual considerations where the context of the scriptural verses are misunderstood or ignored. We talked about the fallacy of sweeping generalization, where a general rule is treated as though it's absolute and must apply in all instances. We talked about the fallacy of ignoring translational issues, where we sometimes take an English definition which differs slightly from the Hebrew, for instance, and then try to find a contradiction within English where it doesn't exist in the original languages. We talked about contradictions of inference, where we read into the scripture things it does not say, and we read into it contradictions, and then we claim that they're there, but they're not actually in the text. They're only in our imaginations. And we also talked about the apparent factual contradictions, where it appears, or the way it's interpreted, the claim is, Scripture says X, but we know that X is false in the real world. And we mentioned that this will occur if the biblical text is misunderstood and it doesn't really say what the skeptic is claiming it says, or perhaps they got the biblical text correct and that claim is really there in Scripture, but they have a misunderstanding of real-world facts. For example, now this isn't in Scripture, but just suppose there had been a statement in Scripture that said, you will find soft tissues in fossilized dinosaur bones. Well, that would have been considered a factual contradiction until we found such soft tissue in dinosaur bones. We're continuing our discussion of the claim that the Bible is simply full of contradictions and errors. Let's consider something. It's kind of interesting that very often it's essentially claimed that there's a blatantly obvious contradiction sitting right there in plain sight, and yet it's in the Bible. What does that imply about the Hebrews and the authors of these texts? You would have to conclude that either those authors just don't care if it's full of errors and contradictions. Now, that's despite the internal claim that it's the truth, and furthermore, that it's God's truth, and we know those authors were extremely religious and devoted to their God. But nonetheless, some people seem to take that route. They just, they didn't care that it's false. Or secondly, and I think more commonly, they get treated like, well, they just weren't very bright. You know, they didn't know any better. But the casual skeptic is so much smarter, they can see a contradiction that's completely obvious, but it was invisible to the Hebrews who revered their scriptures. Those are kind of ridiculous positions to take, but look for them and you'll see them. They're out there very often. Now I want to look at one of the claimed contradictions that's often made, and specifically in the area of whether or not the creation account is even intended to be taken as history and truth. It's often claimed, and I'm sure you've probably heard this, there's actually two different creation accounts. 
There's Genesis 1, and then there's Genesis 2, and they are two separate contradictory accounts. Thus proving either that this was simply cobbled together by a not very bright editor who didn't resolve the contradictions, or was written to be myth from day one and was never intended to be taken as historical fact. Well, one researcher and apologist whose analysis of this we're going to use to some extent is J.P. Holding, and I love the title he gave to his article discussing this supposed contradiction. He titled it, Creation Account Times Two, or Was the Author of Genesis 1 and 2 a Flaming Knucklehead? Well, the first thing to know is that the chapter and verse breakdown that we're so familiar with did not exist in the originals. And the actual division between what is claimed as the first account of creation and the claimed second account, contradictory account at that, of creation is not at the end of chapter 1. It's actually before chapter 2, verse 4, or perhaps after chapter 2, verse 4. Chapter 1 has the familiar sequence of six days, each specified as a day, each having morning and evening, and specific events said to occur on each of those days. That's a rather familiar pattern. By the way, the seventh day isn't treated like that. There's no mention of evening and morning. Uh, There's no discussion of events occurring. What it says at the beginning of our chapter 2 is, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, that's referring to the six days, and on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So what we're really told is God doesn't do any additional creation work on the seventh day because he was already finished. It all occurred during the six days. Well, let's talk about the first claimed contradiction here. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 11, on the third day, you have the earth bringing forth vegetation, plants, seed, fruit trees, etc. And man isn't created until the sixth day. So the first creation account has plants before man. So how is this order supposedly contradicted in the supposed second creation account? By the way, I'm using the ESV translation. Well, Genesis 2, chapter 5 begins, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So the claim is, in chapter 2, God has made man before he made plants. Well, let's just look closely at what it actually says. It says, no bush of the field, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. The Hebrew word used here, which is translated field, Where it's used for known geographic locations, it refers to either a limited area of land or a flat place suitable for agriculture, as opposed to the word used in chapter 1, earth, which has a much broader geographic connotation. And since chapter 2 is referring to agricultural types of plants of the field, 
it certainly makes sense that this is discussed with reference to the man whose job was to tend this field. So what chapter 2 is really talking about is there was no organized agriculture until man was there to do the job. In the following verses in chapter 2, it specifically describes God planting the Garden of Eden and placing man into it to tend it. So this chapter is not indicating there were no plants created yet at all, but rather it's talking about a special place set aside for man and the plants of the field that would be developed there. So there is no contradiction here at all if you simply look at what the text is saying. Now keep in mind, if there's a reasonable understanding of the text in which there is no contradiction, then in fact there is no contradiction. That doesn't mean you can't choose to interpret it in a way to create a contradiction. However, if you choose to do that, it in no way means there really is one. It simply means you can create one by your choice of interpretation. And I'll bet that if you gave me an essay that you wrote on some topic, that I could find a way to interpret parts of it such that you would contradict yourself. That wouldn't mean you actually did. That would simply mean I created a false contradiction. And that's what's occurring here with this particular example in Scripture. Well, let's continue on with examining specifically claimed contradictions that exist between the claimed two creation accounts in Genesis. So here's a second claimed contradiction that's similar. This is the claim that the order of events in Genesis 1 differ from the second creation account in Genesis 2. In this case, the first account has animals created before man, and the second account has man first and then animals, supposedly. Well, the first chapter of Genesis certainly has living creatures, cattle, every kind, creeping things, beast of the earth, all created on day five, and man, both Adam and Eve, were created on day six. Well, let's look at chapter two, and I'm deliberately switching to the King James Version initially in looking at this scripture. The creation of Adam is described, and then in verse 18 it says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helpmeet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air. And he brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And then it goes on. So, after creating Adam, but prior to creating Eve, it says, The Lord God formed every beast of the field. Voila, a contradiction. This is in the opposite order as chapter 1. Well, let's think about this. The simplest and sort of classic solution to this, in fact, one used in multiple English translations, is based upon the simple fact that in Hebrew, the precise tense of a verb is determined by the context. And since the Hebrews saw no conflict between these two, they would simply understand the account in chapter 2 as meaning had formed, which is how both the NIV and the ESV translate the verb. In the ESV, verse 19 reads, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, etc. In Leopold's Exposition of Genesis, the account in chapter 2 is discussed as follows. Without any emphasis on the sequence of acts, the account here records the making of the various creatures and the bringing of them to man. 
that in reality they had been made prior to the creation of man is so entirely apparent from chapter 1 as to not require explanation. But the reminder that God had molded them makes obvious his power to bring them to man and so is quite appropriately mentioned here. It would not, in our estimation, be wrong to translate Yatsar as a pluperfect in this instance. He had molded. The insistence of the critics upon a plain past is partly the result of the attempt to make chapters 1 and 2 clash at as many points as possible. So Leopold points out that in context, there's simply no reason to use a plain past tense, and comments also on the motivations of the critics who try to insist on it. So just by translating the tense of the verb had formed, the apparent contradiction vaporizes. Now while this solution is good enough for the translators of the NIV and the ESV and perhaps some other translations, for some skeptics it's not good enough. They claim based upon some very detailed analysis of the Hebrew text that chapter 2 must be describing things in the order in which they actually happened. Well, it turns out that Hebrew scholars disagree. An older commentary by Kyle and Delich discussed this in this way. The consecutive arrangement in Genesis 2.19 may be explained on the supposition that the writer, who was about to describe the relationship of man to the beast, went back to the creation in the simple method of early Semitic historian, and placed this first instead of making it subordinate, so that our modern style of expressing the same would be, quote, God brought to Adam the beast which he had formed, end quote. A striking example of this style of narrative is in 1 Kings 7, verse 13, the building and completion of the temple we notice several times in chapter 6, and the last time in connection with the year and month, chapter 6, verses 9, 14, 37, 38. And after that, the fact is stated that the royal palace was 13 years in building. And then it is related that Solomon fetched Hiram from Tyre to make the two pillars. If we are to understand this as consecutive events, then Solomon would be made to send for the artist 13 years after the temple was finished. It only expresses the thought Hiram, whom Solomon fetched from Tyre. Furthermore, there are examples within the Old Testament itself where this style of grammatical usage results in a correct translation as a pluperfect, the had formed, a completed event in the past. And even for this specific verb, it is claimed that that type of translation is valid within Scripture itself. So the argument from the skeptics really holds no weight. But, Let's pretend it did. Suppose that it was a really valid argument. Would that force this to be a contradiction? J.P. Holding discusses it this way. The naming of the animals was not simply a pre-Linnean classification exercise. In other words, Adam wasn't giving Latin scientific names to these creatures. It was a demonstration of Adam's dominion over the entirety of nature. The giving of names in ancient Oriental thought was an exercise of sovereignty and command. One may compare here the idea of bringing subjects before a sovereign, and this will come into play as we develop our argument that assumes reading formed as a simple past tense. Now, for recollection and rhetorical purposes, let's once again quote the key passage, Genesis 2, 18-20. 
And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helpmeet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found an helpmeet for him. Does anyone notice something? God formed beasts and fowl here, but he brings before Adam beasts, fowl, and cattle. The domestic creatures, where did they come from? The answer under this proposition is that they were already in Eden, a place of domestic specialty set aside, and that the forming of the beasts and fowl is an act of special creation, giving Adam samples of these beasts and fowls from outside Eden for the sake of presenting them to the earth's appointed sovereign. For after all, why should a king have to wait for his subjects to wander in when he can have them brought to him at once? In this passage, the author clearly shows awareness of the cattle having already been created in Genesis chapter 1, for he does not indicate their creation here, but rather assumes that they don't need to be created. Even without the pluperfect rendering, the Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 accounts demonstrate a perfect consistency. Let's step back a minute and just think about the complete picture here. Scripture claims to be God's revelation to man. Consider what's really described here. Genesis chapter 1 is very clearly an unambiguous sequential listing of accounts, events that occurred in the creation of everything during six days. That fact is reiterated in Exodus, where it says, For in six days God created the heavens and the earth. So it's not just recorded in Genesis 1. The account in Genesis 2 is not another creation account. It doesn't even appear to be one. It focuses in on events that occurred specifically related to man on the sixth day of creation. You don't find out who man is or his relationship to woman or his relationship to the animals or any of that information from Genesis chapter 1. You do find it out from Genesis chapter 2. There's an entire other set of information which is completely complementary and non-contradictory with the creation account in the first chapter. One facet of the whole discussion that is so interesting is the fact that it's only certain portions of Scripture that get attacked like this, where people attempt to find excuses for ignoring what it says. Specifically, the creation account is perhaps the most attacked in that regard because it is believed we need to accommodate the Big Bang and biological evolution, so we've got to get away from any notion that this is history being recorded in Genesis. And that's despite the fact that these early chapters are referred to in the New Testament always as history. And when theistic evolutionists and other old earth believers are pushed, they will sometimes admit, well, yes, it is written as though it's history, but those events really don't represent what happened because God could not communicate what we scientific types today are able to understand to those pre-scientific people. So God had to tell them a story to get across the meaningful spiritual truths that God is the creator, but he couldn't really tell them that the Big Bang and evolution happened.
Well, that comment is actually incredibly insulting to man as being unable to understand some rather simple concepts. And it also implies that God is unable to communicate with the man that he says he created in his own image. And furthermore, it's actually quite easy to tell the Big Bang and evolution stories using simple language that clearly would be understandable by anyone. See the blog on my website titled Big Bang and Evolution for Pre-Scientific Peoples, where I recount Dr. Terry Mortensen's article, Genesis According to Evolution. In summary, if your goal is to convince yourself that you can ignore the Bible and that it's full of errors, you'll find sufficient excuses to make yourself believe that. But I urge you to let the evidence lead you to the truth wherever that lies. See creationmythormiracle.com for more info.